wonderful to see all of you here this morning. For those of you who are joining us on SOCC.TV, we're glad you're here. Those of you in the fellowship hall, good to see you this morning. Thanks for joining us. The ancient church, as Tim kind of clued you in, always greeted one another on this day with these marvelous words. He is risen. He is risen indeed. indeed. Our theme this morning is restored. Uh, I, I, there's just something about the restoration process that is, well, I think it's exciting. Those of you who know me know that I just really enjoy a classic car that has been restored to look like it has just rolled off the assembly line. But what really makes that an amazing thing is when you see a picture of the car when it is finished, but you also see a picture of the car uh, before it was restored. And the process between the two makes it, well, thrilling. It may not be a car for you. It may be a house, an old dilapidated house that's suddenly restored into a, a new place. Or a, a homestead, a farmstead, where the barn is, you know, the roof is sagging and the walls are caving in and all of a sudden it, it has been restored. I, I don't know what it is for you, but we all like this process of restoration. If you could restore something, what would it be? M maybe, maybe it'd be the past. Literature abounds with books about time travel. H.G. Wells, The Time Machine, Michael Crichton, Timeline, Madeline L. Engel, A Wrinkle in Time, Stephen King, 11-22-63. I discovered the list of top favorite time travel books. Guess how many were on it? 604. I had no idea there were that many novels, fictional novels written about time travel. Because you see, I think there's something about us that wishes that we could go back in time and make something different. For two seasons, NBC offered the weekly show Timeless, which took the viewer to famous moments and famous people in the past, either trying to tweak history a little bit or preserve history. It seems to me there's a common thread that runs through all the books, all the shows, all the movies, that in one facet or another, they reflect on an attempt to restore, salvage, change, or protect the past. And I got to tell you, I, you know, if time travel were possible, there, there, there's, some, there's some dates that I'd go back and change in a heartbeat. How about you? April 14th, 1865, Ford's Theater, Washington, D.C. I can only imagine how much better our country would have been had President Lincoln lived out his term of office and helped heal this broken land between what happened in the Civil War and to elevate emancipated slaves to their rightful place in American society. Or November 22nd, 1963, the grassy knoll in Dallas, Texas. I've wondered, had President Kennedy lived to serve out his first term, maybe even been elected to a second term, would there have been a Vietnam War like we know it? Would there have been 58,000 American lives lost so needlessly? In a heartbeat, we'd turn back the clock on 20 years ago yesterday, April the 20th, 1999, and erase the Columbine High School Massacre forever. And if we could, we'd sound the alarm on September 11, 2001 and restore the lives of those who perished in the Twin Towers of New York City on that dreadful day that changed our American culture forever. And yes, we'd turn back the clock just 24 hours and see if we could spare those Christians in Sri Lanka. Actually, folks, actually, I'd like to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and tackle Adam and Eve before they could get their hands on that fruit that changed everything. <laughs> well, you know as well as I do that we can't change the past, but in a, in a very unique sense, there is a way it can be restored. 
The event that we celebrate this morning is God's promise that despite life's brokenness in this world, he can and will make all things new in his time. You see, our God is a God of restoration and so much more. Recently, we, we traveled the, the narrow streets of Jerusalem and we, and we came to the courtyard of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Now, it wasn't as busy on that day as it is on most days, but it is a chaotic place. And inside the building, uh, it, it was just shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder people. And, and all of the glitz and the glitter and the religious trappings of that place made it really hard for me to see what was going on. I, I couldn't, it, it is a church that is built over the place where they think Jesus died and, and nearby where he was probably buried. But for all of the glitz and glitter and religious trappings, I couldn't figure out what was going on there. And here's the part that really bothered me. So there are several different Christian denominations that are vying for control of the church building and the setting it was designed to protect. Unfortunately, it has become a place of religious turf wars and bitter strife. This place that is supposed to honor the Prince of Peace has become a place of constant conflict. I walked out of that courtyard frustrated and embarrassed. Embarrassed that this is the way the church acts about a place that maybe was the beginning of our faith story. Later on that same day, we visited another location also suggested as a possible place for the death and burial of Jesus. It's known as the Garden Tomb. Uh, it's not nearly so commercialized, but it wasn't discovered until 1867. It had been buried over. And when it was uncovered, everything began to fit. Um, there is a place right now, you can see it from the garden. It's just a short distance away. It's, it's the place of the skull. This is where many people think that Jesus was crucified. And if you look at the picture, you can see it. Even though it has weathered with the last 2,000 years, you can see the eye sockets there. If you look down kind of in where the fence is, you can sort of see a mouth. You can see it looks like a skull. Uh, I'm sure it was even more pronounced 2,000 years ago. This may have been the very spot where he died. And next to that garden or that, that crucifixion area is a garden area. Now, they know it was a garden area because they discovered an ancient wine press there and an ancient cistern, which you'd have found in a garden area. And there they found this tomb. All of that fits what John writes in his gospel in John 19. He said, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Inside the tomb is what appears to be a Byzantine symbol above the area of burial. It's a cross. You can see that, obviously. But it is accompanied by the Greek letters that indicate Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. The Alpha and the Omega there are on the bottom. That, that would have been written in the third century. So somebody obviously in the third century believed this was the place where Jesus was buried. Where he died for our sins and where he rose for our hope. Now, they have some shelters nearby in this beautiful garden area, and our group made their way to a shelter. And there on a Sabbath evening, we took communion. I will not forget that moment when we ate the bread and we drank the cup near what may be the spot where Jesus died in our place and was buried just as he buried our sins once and for all. But I want you to know this morning that the Lord's Supper is the same no matter when or where we take it. 
One need not be physically near the place of the skull nor the garden tomb to treasure the moment that we call the Lord's Supper. No matter where we are when we take it, no matter when we meet around this table, the Lord's Supper always leads us where we need to be, to the foot of the cross. So are either the places that we visited there in Jerusalem the actual place where Jesus died and was buried? I have no way of knowing that. I don't think anybody knows. I think only God in heaven knows that. This I do know. It does not matter because there is no body in a tomb to mourn. There's only an empty slab somewhere that Jesus borrowed for a short time before he was restored to life. But that's not all, folks. He wasn't restored to what was, but to what will be. To celebrate resurrection is to celebrate restoration. This is not just some ordinary religious holiday that brings us together. This day, what we celebrate today, eclipses everything. What we mark today is the heartbeat of our faith. Folks, what do you think it would have taken to change people from worship on the Sabbath to worship on Sunday, the first day of the week? Remember, the ancient church was almost exclusive Jewish. And so what would have taken these people who had worshiped for generations on the Sabbath day, to suddenly start worshiping on Sunday, the first day of the week. Why? It would have taken something cataclysmic, something life-changing, something monumental, something like a once-in-all-history moment. Something like the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yeah, you say, but, uh, you know, Jesus raised others, and we don't celebrate those moments. What's the difference? Well, there's a big difference. Jesus restored their lives to what had been, to the way it was. Now, I mean, these were great ways of of God demonstrating his power over our greatest obstacle, death. But it was still a mortal restoration. Each of those resurrected individuals, from the daughter of Jairus to the dear friend of Lazarus, eventually died again. But when Jesus was raised and restored, it was not a restoration to simply what was, but to what will be. Now, it was Jesus, make no doubt about that, but he was different. It's because he was given the new resurrected body, the one promised to all of us who follow him. The Bible calls the resurrection of Jesus the first fruits of those who have died. The promise is that someday we too will be restored with a new body suited for eternity. That's the great hope that we celebrate today. His resurrection is not about what was, but what will be. And because he lives... We too will live. Now, I know what you're thinking. Yeah, 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 that's down the road. That's someday. That's in the future. What does the resurrection mean for me right now in this broken, often confusing, sometimes discouraging life of mine? I want you to remember that our God is a God of restoration. 61 times in the scripture, we read the word restore. And even now, he has restored some of what was lost because of our choices and sin. Let let me just give you a few thoughts as we wind up our time here today about what, what he has given us through the power of his resurrection. Here's the first one. Because he lives, he has restored our standing. He has restored our standing. Malchus was in good standing. For an ordinary guy, he had a rather plumb position. He was servant to Jerusalem's high priest, Caiaphas, the highest civic and religious authority in all of Judea. Now, these were 
troublesome times in Jerusalem. Been that way for about a year. I mean, there was always a constant conflict between Judea and Rome and the, and the governors that Caesar would send to rule over that area. And this last one, a guy by the name of Pontius Pilate was especially irritating. But that wasn't the real problem. The real problem was a rebel rabbi by the name of Jesus. He just kept stirring up problems for Caiaphas. Why, on Sunday of this week, he had ridden into town on a donkey and people were gathering already to celebrate the Passover, the biggest day in all of Jewish history there in Jerusalem. And the crowds were out singing and shouting and praising and adoring him. And Caiaphas was incensed. He hatched a plot involving one of the Jesus' own disciples, a guy by the name of Judas Iscariot, that before the week was over, they were going to have a out. This was going to be done and over with. That somehow, even with trumped up charges, even with a phony trial, they would have him dead once and for all. News had come that tonight, Jesus and his crew would be in the Garden of Gethsemane. So tonight was the night. Now, here's the problem. Caiaphas, the high priest, he couldn't go. I mean, you know, he's the religious leader of Judea. And so he has to stay above the fray. He's got to keep his hands clean. He can't be dirty. After all, this was Passover time. After all, he was the high priest. So he sends his trusted servant, a guy by the name of Malchus. And boy, this is Malchus's moment to shine. Maybe, maybe if he does it right, his boss will be extremely proud of him. So Malchus leads the mob. He's the first one to the edge of the garden. The soldiers are close behind and they're seeking Jesus. And when Jesus appears, I, I, I think Malchus probably was taken back a little bit. This guy doesn't seem like such a rebel. There, there's a kindness, a, a gentleness about him that, well, Caiaphas didn't describe him this way. And when the soldiers demanded Jesus... Jesus said this, he said, if you're looking for me, then let these men go. Talking about his disciples. Hi, I'm here, you can, you can have me. At that moment, perhaps out of the corner of his eye, Malchus caught the glint of metal out of the torchlight and he ducked as Peter came swinging a stubby little sword. He ducked, but he didn't duck far enough because Peter cut off his ear. This was not the way things were supposed to go. Malchus is dazed. What began as an opportunity to ensure his good standing with the high priest now may be lost forever. I mean, what high priest of, of Israel is going to want a maimed servant, somebody without an ear, somebody that's disfigured? He's not going to want me standing by his side anymore. And there he, there he sat, rubbing what was there. The blood's running down the side of his face. He hears the muffled words of Jesus say, put your sword away, Peter. That's not the way we're going to do things. And then he doesn't even see it. But Jesus reaches over and restores his ear. Ma Ma Malchus can't believe it. it. It was gone just a minute ago. It's there. The blood is gone. And Malchus thinks he can hear better than he's ever heard before out of that ear. Who, who was this man that would do something so kind and gracious for an enemy? This is one of my favorite Bible stories surrounding the death and the resurrection of Jesus for a lot of reasons. Here's one of the reasons. Jesus practiced what he preached. You know, early in his ministry, Jesus delivered what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said something like this. Love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Those weren't just idle words. 
He lived what he said. He practiced what he preached. Do you realize, do you realize, folks, that the last miracle of Jesus was lavished on an enemy? Who would do that? I got to tell you, I'm not that nice. I'm not that good, folks. If I were Jesus, I would have said, ha, serves you right, Malchus. Remember all those times when I said, he who has an ear, let him hear? Well, good luck with that right now, fella. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. He restored the man's ear and in doing so restored his treasured position. He, he was a man once again in good standing. Are we listen, do we listen to what Jesus has to say? Do we listen to his actions? Are we a people that practice what we preach? Are we consistent with our words and our actions? Are we genuinely sincere do we respond to attacks with grace or with retaliation? When the world looks at us, are they able to see Jesus or is he camouflaged by our anger and our vengeful spirits? You see, if restoration is a part of God's plan, then shouldn't we be about the work of restoring others to him? After all, we've been restored to a good standing with the Heavenly Father because of the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not because we're good, not because we deserve it, but because he's good and because he wanted us there. Folks, he doesn't make us perfect. He just forgives our sins and puts us in a right standing with God. His grace has made all the difference. Maybe we ought to listen better to Jesus. Maybe we ought to imitate his example better. Maybe. Maybe when Jesus said, he who has an ear, let him hear, he was thinking of us. I've often wondered if when Malchus scratched his ear, did he think of Jesus? I mean, who couldn't? When somebody does something like that for you, how could you ever forget that moment in time? But here, here is the part that intrigues me the most. John is the gospel that tells us his name was Malchus. You, do you realize how odd that is almost exclusively throughout scripture a servant's name is never given they're a servant after all that answers the question all you have to do is say a servant of so-and-so because servants didn't matter but here it did Malchus now remember John wrote his gospel years after Matthew Mark and Luke so there's a big time span in here and many of the people who were alive at the time of of the event would now be dead by the time that John writes but there were a lot of things that transpired between these moments in the garden and the time that John writes. Here's what I think. I don't know this for sure, but here's what I think. And I think there's good reason to believe it. Their early church would have recognized the name of Malchus. Why? Because I think Malchus became an ardent Christian and maybe even a leader in the ancient church. You wouldn't put his name in like that unless he was known to the people. So here's a guy who starts out as an enemy. Jesus miraculously restores his ear gives his life to Jesus Christ, and why wouldn't he? Because after Jesus has miraculously restored you, why? Who else would you want to follow? Here's the deal, folks. The miracle of a restored ear is nothing compared to a miracle of a restored life. Jesus has restored our lives and made them worth living. Shouldn't we be ardent followers of him as well? Peter the guy with the stubby sword wrote this to the ancient church. In chapter 5, verse 10, he says, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you. 
and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. That's a good standing, folks. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Well, here's the second thing. Because he lives, he has restored our joy. David writes in Psalm 51 verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Now, David writes this as a psalm of repentance. This is when God forgives him for his great sin with Bathsheba and restored his standing in his, uh, with the Father. And the result of a restored standing well, it's joy. I mean, how can you not be happy when, when you've been restored to a good standing? Do you remember how you felt when, as a kid when you'd done something wrong and you were scared to death and you, knew, and you knew some kind of punishment was coming and then mom and dad forgave you and said, I, I, okay, just don't do it again. Whoa, burden was lifted from the shoulders like mom and dad gave you a fresh start, a clean start, a, a new opportunity to do it right and you felt, well, Joyful. It's the same kind of feeling when you've been working outside all day and you're hot and sweaty and grimy and you've been working in dust and you're just covered with all kinds of crud and you go into the shower and wash it all away. How do you feel when you step out of the shower? Restored, don't you? You're refreshed. You're, you're, you're clean again. It's a great feeling. And you say, well, yeah, yeah, of course. The Bible says cleanliness is next to godliness. No, the Bible doesn't say cleanliness is next to godliness. I was hoping for a little bit better response from you on that one. <laughs> It is a good expression, though, to help remind us of the joy of being clean. Yes, it's not always been that way. We think nothing of putting on clean clothes every day of our lives. But did you know in the 17th century <laughs> that clothes only got washed four or five times a year? Phew, boy. <laughs> By the 18th century, wash day came around every six weeks. Although some garments were never washed because they were made of either satin, brocade, silk, or velvet, those kinds of clothes never got washed. From rocks in the creek to scrub boards and ringers, laundry slowly improved. And then in 1874, Hoosier Bill Blackstone, right here in the state of Indiana, put six pegs in the bottom of a wash tub, affixed a rotating handle and gear mechanism, and he invented the very first washing machine. And he gave it to his wife on her birthday. <laughs> All of which verifies that men's gift-giving ability has not improved with the passing of years. No matter, no matter how often we wash our clothes, they get dirty again. But when God washes a soul, it lasts forever. The prophet Isaiah tells us that when he washes us, he makes us as white as snow. And that's a, clean, that's a cleanliness that really is next to godliness. And such restored joy puts everything into perspective. Leon Bloy wrote, he said, joy is the most infallible sign of the presence of God. When you're joyful, people can see Christ in us. In his book, This Is Your Brain on Joy, Dr. Earl Henslin describes how joy and anxiety travel the same pathway in our brains. Did you know that? He goes on to say that there's not enough room for both to simultaneously occupy the path, so we get to choose the one which does. If we fixate on worry, joy takes a back seat. If, however, we choose joy, worry has no room to come along. And I know of nothing that opens the gate to joy and closes it to worry and anxiety like God's cleansing forgiveness. Because he lives, we have joy, the joy of being clean in him. Here's the last thing. 
Because he lives, he's restored our hope. Man, folks, life is messy. You know that I know it. Life is messy. <laughs> Christian author Bob Goff said, if mess-ups were push-ups, I'd be totally ripped. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't we all? Don't you wish we could turn back the clock and do some things over? Oh, if time travel were possible, I'd go back and I'd undo words and actions and deeds and thoughts and choices. How about you? But here is our hope. We can't go back and undo, but God is going to redo. Again, when we think about restoration, we think about what was. But God is in the business of restoring to what will be. And that's the basis of our hope. Listening to the words of Peter earlier in the service, I want to go through them again. This was written to the church at the time of deep persecution, but it is not filled with statements that are somber or words that are filled with despair. It is words of great hope. Listen to the words again. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept where? In heaven for you. Did you catch that? It is a new birth into a living hope. And by living hope, Peter communicates a hope that is not vain or foolish, but is as solid as God's word that is, well, steadfast and enduring forever. Such a foundation is what we build our restored life upon. We can't go back and undo, but that's okay because God is all about the new. I, I don't know if you know this, but our hope, our assurance, our confidence is in God's promise of newness. Now, we, if, we're, if you're a Christian, you've already experienced a new birth. And the result of that is that we've been made a new person and set upon a new path in life. Scripture encourages us to keep looking to a new heaven and a new earth. God has promised to give us a new body and a new name, his new name. We'll be in a new place to live in his new Jerusalem, and we'll sing a new song in our new life. And then in the closing chapter of Revelation, it's as if God says, well, let me just put it this way. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. You know why they're trustworthy and true? Because of the resurrection. Let me, let me hear me say this. If the resurrection isn't true, our faith is of no importance. But if the tomb is empty because he lives, then our faith is of infinite importance. And I can handle just about anything if I have a living hope in the one who restores and makes all things new. Are, are you trusting him for your new destination? I don't know if you read about it or not, but last month, March 26th, British Airways Flight 3271 took off from London City Airport. All the passengers had bid farewell to their friends who were there to see them off, and they got on the plane, and the plane was, well, they thought the destination was Dusseldorf, Germany. That's what they bought a ticket for. Most of the folks lived in Dusseldorf. They were going back home. But the flight crew, the pilots, and the control tower all had something different. They had a different flight plan, and so the plane landed in Edinburgh, Scotland. Now, when you're headed to Dusseldorf, Dusseldorf, that's not where you want to end up. There were no problems with the plane. It was a safe journey. They just were headed to the wrong destination. But with a, a profuse apology and a refueled plane, they finally made it to Dusseldorf. Where are you headed, folks? 
Do you know what your final destination is? Do you have the right flight plan? Once we say goodbye to this life, there will be no apology or refueling. There will be no turning back the clock, no time travel, no redos. I only know of one who can get you safely to your new destination, to your new home. Because if he can escape death and the tomb, then he can get you home. And once you're home, you'll be forever restored. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.